A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello Ruckers, welcome to the latest edition of The Ruck, your rugby podcast from The Times and Sunday Times. We have another packed show ahead. We'll be dissecting Eddie Jones' England squad for the Autumn Internationals, reviewing the latest round of Premiership Rugby, including a record victory for Saracens against Bath. Um, We'll be hearing from Jess Hayden on the latest in the women's game, and from Christian Day, the Head of Player Affairs at the RPA, on the debate surrounding artificial pitches and male players being now allowed to wear leggings. I'm Alex Lowe, and joining me this week are Stuart Barnes and Alan Dimmock. Morning, fellas. How are you doing, Alex? Well, I'm, I'm all right, thank you. How are you guys? Al, you're, where are you? I'm in Scotland, so the air is clearer, the water's nicer, um, people actually make eye contact when they say hello to you. It's, <laughs> I'm just loving life. Uh, I'm in Wiltshire where there's no people around me, and that's <laughs> just fine at the moment. What are you doing up there, Al? Uh, much, some much needed holiday, but I had to push everyone aside and say, no, this is important. I need to go on the rock and talk I'm, to the guys. I'm broadcasting. It. That's what you said. Yeah, Fam- family outdoors, go for a walk. I'm, I'm broadcasting. I said, I need to go and talk about Bath's record defeat and see how Barnsley feels about that. Although there is one thing rugby related up here that everyone's talking about. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but in the United Rugby Championship, there's been some howler decisions. So there's been some tries given that really should not be given as tries. And it transpires. There's no referees manager. And considering last time I was on, Stuart where I made such an impassioned plea about standards of refereeing. There's there's an open open role there for Barnsley if he wants to go in and sort out refereeing. Yeah, can I just say, though, I mean, I, I watched Sale uh, uh, beat um, Harlequins Friday night and neither Rafi Quirk tries should remotely been given and, and we've got managers or referees in England but they're still making horlicks of decision week after week game after game and I did talk to one um, DOR and it was off the record and when I was asked talking about that game Friday and you know he said I, I've been in touch just about the standards there, there, there's real concern I think um, amongst DORs about refereeing at the moment they, they either give quickly without seeing what's happening or they spend forever looking for the decision. And if, if you're going to do that, get it right or just get on with it, I think. I think that should be the motto, get it right or get on with it. But at the moment, we're halfway between one and t'other. Stuart, are you are you grumpy today because Bath shipped 70 points? Or are you grumpy because last time I saw you, you had an, an enormous gin and tonic in your hand about five rows in front of me at the wreck. And are you feeling the effects today? I, I, I must... 
I must dismiss this line of attack. <laughs> One, I it was enormous. Grumpy. It was enormous. What I am, I am not grumpy. This is, as Alan has said, this is my normal situation. Be something refereeing, and it has been. Um, well, it was when I was playing the game, um, and it certainly is at the moment. Uh, the gin and tonic looked extremely large. It was in a pint-sized glass, um, but you're not allowed to take glass from the president's room, where my dear friend John Hall is residing president. So I had to take it in a large vessel, and it was hugely um, toniced up. Um, so, Are you drinking out of a vase? Did you nick a vase off somewhere? There's some flowers lying around the room. No, I, I considered that um, come the second half. Um, but the first <laughs> half, I just thought, I, I, I hadn't seen Bath play um, in, a, in, in a, a role as a, a spectator since 1994. I've, I've seen them lots of times at home, but only as a broadcaster or a writer. And the sun was shining and Adadeo Adebayo was there and Hawley was there. And I thought, wow. Take, take my wife there. What a nice way to pass a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> having filed on time. And and, and it was. One thing I'll say, uh, Saracens were magnificent. It, it, our gut reaction is to say, my God, what happened to Bath? But they were bloody good. I would say, God, what happened to Bath? <laughs> God, what happened to Bath? Well, well, we'll come on to that. We'll work out exactly what went wrong for them or what went right for Saracens uh, shortly. Firstly, though, today, Eddie Jones has named his England squad and we'll be discussing that next. So the uh, England squad for the Auto Internationals against Tonga, Australia and South Africa has just landed in my email. Um, Mark McCall said after the game at the recreation ground on Sunday that he would be amazed if none of his uh, Saracens contingent were in the squad, well, Mark McCall, stand by to be amazed. There are no, there is no place for Maka Vunipola, Billy Vunipola, or Jamie George, or Ben Earl. Um, George Ford is still on the outside. There's no place for him. Um, I'm just going through it here. Dan Robson is absent from this squad, which is a, a pretty significant selection there. I think he's out. Um, but Rafi Quirk and Harry Randall are in, along with Ben Youngs. Al, Stuart, have you had a chance to have a look at it? What do you what do you make of it? Um, the couple of uncapped players have come in too. Yeah, I think I think the interesting one, I mean, one of the things that jumped out at me there was looking through the, the list of players that are uncapped is when you notice that Jamie George isn't in, Nick Dolly has come in, and that's a form selection for a young player that's doing really well at Leicester. But and then, as you mentioned there, the scrum half. I mean, hookers and scrum halves. The legacy of Eddie Jones is going to be that from the day he came in to the day he leaves, we're going to be discussing his selections at hooker and his selections at scrum half. And Ben Youngs is going to be the one constant there. So we've got the young lads that are coming in. Dan Robson, off the back of maybe getting 15, 20 minutes against Italy every Six Nations, is is at, out. At and these young young lads are coming out. Uh, coming in, sorry, and Ben Youngs is the, there as the constant safety net. Mm. It's an interesting one. Like, are these young guys going to, are we going to let them have a go against Tonga and then as soon as Australia comes in, a big test, he's not going to give them a go. It's just really interesting to see uh, what, what what he does with that. But certainly those, those are just looking at down that one. The only other thing that stands out to me is, and it's something that we probably was on the cards anyway, and I think we discussed this a little bit off air, was the idea that whatever happens with no George Ford there, that's actually a significant 
thing for the character of this team because the Ford Farrell axis for so long as part of this England leadership group has dictated what the attack's been played like. Mm. Whatever happens now, it's going to have to be completely different in tone or or it probably fortifies the position of, of Owen Farrell, not that it was needed, but suddenly it just changes the uh, the mood around things. What have you made of it, Stuart? Uh, obviously, the headline's not who's in, the headline's who's out. Um, one thing I would say, we're, we're all sort of jumping around and shouting, saying, blimey, Billy Vunapola, Maka Vunapola, Jamie George, they're all playing so well. Um they weren't playing that well for a couple of years. And I think Jones has, I defend him here for once. I think he's taken a, a long view uh, and to a certain extent has decided that, you know, two or three good games doesn't make up for a, a season plus of mediocrity. Now, obviously that isn't a consistent view because if that was the case, Owen Farrell, who played very well against Bath, has played hardly any decent rugby for nearly two years and he remains as captain. Um, so it's not consistent, but there's an under, I, I understand what Eddie Jones is looking at here. Um, it looks to me, uh, personnel aside, uh, very much like uh, squad selected uh, to maximise England's opportunities in Paris 2023 uh, rather than necessarily be both Australia and the Springboks this coming autumn. And I, I think that's significant. And I, I wouldn't agree with a fair few of these selections. But in terms of the philosophy of what Jones is doing, uh, I think you can't place equal importance on every single international. You have to make a plan. Jones was always told and has always admitted the World Cup was the main aim. And this looks to me more a World Cup. Uh, squad of 34 uh, than uh, Autumn International 34. Another another interesting thing that pops up here is, is it now becoming survival of the fittest at number eight? With Billy Vunapola out, you know, after his, his, his card couple of years, his form hasn't been enough to see him uh, to see him secure a place in this. But if you look at Alex Dombrandt with his one cap, if you look at uh, Sam Simmons coming back into the fold with seven caps to his name, you talk about whether Callum Chick's in there, you talk about whether Curry is in the running for number eight as well and whether that's a long-term plan. Is it? Is this a case, do you think, or maybe it's not, I'm just spitballing here, do you think it's an opportunity for it's like, right, throw, throw a weapon in the middle, whichever one of you survives gets to keep the number eight shirt? I don't think it's... I don't think it's far off that. I think I think I agree there's elements of both of what you said there on, on the makeup of this squad. Eddie said when he named that first training camp squad a few weeks ago that... He was looking to to build a new leadership team, and he's confirmed Owen Farrell will continue as captain. Which, as on a tangent, it, it, it's fascinating for for the makeup of that midfield. Because if Owen Farrell is captain, then he's he's either starting ahead of Marcus Smith at fly half, or he's going to play alongside Marcus Smith, uh, presumably with Manu outside centre. Which yeah, I it looks, it looks like Henry Slade, who has been a fair constant with Eddie Jones. Uh, is not going to be starting these games. There's no way Eddie Jones is going to go Marcus Smith, Owen Farrell and Henry Slade. Um, he's made this mistake with three uh, non-hefty non carriers. England's best midfield... Well, it, it, England's best midfield has Tuolangi at 12. 
Sarah Ten has the options. Mm. He's, as, as I said, he's compromised himself on Farrell and he, he ain't going to back down on that. Um, but that does mean outside Farrell, uh, England have to have power because they don't have a giant on the wing either. You know, no rocker, no fucking uh, a singer. They don't have someone coming off the shoulder than the Nandolo type. So um, it has to be Tuolangi. You cannot play Smith and Farrell without having uh, Bossel at centre. And if you've watched Henry Slade of late, he's done some lovely things. But I've seen him about three games this season, constantly caught behind the gain line, trying to ghost on an outside angle. And, you know, when I watch games, I, I try and think, what would Eddie Jones be thinking there? And I think, what does Eddie Jones think when an outside centre gets caught behind the gain line? It's not mm. something that we can repeat before midnight at least. So he, he's he's confirmed Farrell as his captain, but to go back to your initial point about the Vunapolas and, and George and Ford and, and their form, I think he has decided to keep them on the outside because he is trying to build underneath Owen Farrell, a, lead, a new leadership team, which he's already said that, that was one of his intentions. So I think you're looking looking down this list now. Tom Curry will step up, Courtney Laws will step up, Ellis Genge will step up, and Marcus Smith will step up. And I think if I think to to Al's point, if you had Ford and Farrell who have been so in, integral to the way that that England attack has has developed and has been run for the last four or five years. If Marcus Smith comes in with those two there, I think it's very hard for him to to, to take on a senior role to 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 have his voice heard in that in those conversations because he's coming into a setup that already works. What Eddie Jones is trying to do here, it looks like to me, is is create a sort of a chaos, if you like, within the squad where he's got and he's got a, a flurry of new new voices, new leaders, new ideas, and give him an opportunity to. To, to develop um, and that I think is, as much as anything else is why those senior players aren't there because those those senior players who didn't perform in the Six Nations may have performed pretty well in a couple of games this season but this is as you said Stuart I think this is a, a longer term view of what is this group of players who are going to lead this squad into the World Cup and um, and I think it's, you'll see new leaders stepping up underneath Owen and the constant churn as well. It's a bit like an ocean, isn't it? Where you, you see the waves, but there's all sorts of stuff happening underneath it. When when mm. when you think the fury that's been in Jamie George's performance to go with the clinical nature of it, see how furious he's been. See how committed Billy Vinopola, who's been flipping in and out of games for years. See how focused George Ford has been. All of this, I think Eddie Jones will be sort of smiling to himself mm. saying, it's all happened since I bombed them out of the squad. The season had hardly started, and and look how well they're playing. So as I, I agree with you, Alex. You, you, you set up your new leadership group there, but beneath it, you've got three, uh, three or four core players who, if they keep getting better and better through the autumn, through Europe, mm-hmm. are going to be knocking on the door for the Six Nations. They're going to be hungry again, and it's almost like this three-month period when they're, they're not going to be there has fueled them to go again. So, yeah, the more I think of it, the, the more I think there's one or two things where lots of our colleagues, including ourselves, might say, what a terrible selection. But I, I would look at this in the broad context. And um, in the broad context, I, I like it a lot. Nick, Nick Dolly and Tommy Freeman 
um, are two uncapped, two of the uncapped players, both of whom knew into the squad. Neither of them were, were in that training camp uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, both of which are, both of whom are there on on form. I think that the, the Freeman selection is interesting because because if you look at the some of the players who have been there, um, you know, there's, I'm just going to look look at the bat line. Sorry, I'm just going through this list now as we this is um, breaking news here. Ollie Lawrence, Louis Liner, Joe March, and Ollie Slighthome. They're just a selection of of players who were there and and have been jettisoned. And Freeman is in. Al, you were nodding. Yeah, well, it's just I was just thinking like who's wearing the 15 shirt for the whole of November because it's kind of like what I said earlier about the number eight position. Freeman coming in purely on form now, and he's not a stranger bringing guys in just to be around the environment and learn what it's like to be in an England camp and be around elite players and then slink away and go right here's here's a, a list as long as your arm of things that I'd like you to work on. Mm. Here's here's the number of I've picked, plucked out of air. I would need you to be 37 and a half percent better at X. Mm-hmm. Um, we know Eddie's want to do that, but you know Max Malins, um, Freddie Stewart, uh, Anthony Watson. It'll be interesting to see who they're going to nail their colours to the mast and say, "I'd like that to be our 15 going ahead." Is it? it did Stewart show enough in the summer? Is his, is his form is enough? Has been enough for him to go? You know what? This guy's the long-term future at 15. It's an it's an interesting one to ponder. Uh, Eddie's looking at. Um... He, in the, the first game of the summer, he picked Max Malins on the wing um, and referred to his old Brumbies team where he had um, Joe Roth and Andrew Walker both in the same back back three. And I like the idea of Malins on the wing for his, um, not, not just his pace and finishing, but his, his aerial ability. And of course, we saw Malins play on the wing only yesterday and, and run a hat-trick past, past Bath looking electric going forward. And I wonder whether... Whether that's part of his thinking, he's got Malins as as a as a versatile player in that back three. Listen, there's also we haven't mentioned uh, uh, Furbank, who's been spectacular for Northampton, uh, and I think this Freeman on form would not get in over Louis Liner. Liner's Liner's been in the squad. I don't know what Eddie Jones has made, but he's had a taste of it. it looks to me now, Freeman's ain't going to be anywhere near. Um, uh, 23 for the test mm. uh, but he's going to get a taste of it so he's really um, going quite deep there um, and, and Furbank Jones has an affinity with Southern Hemisphere coaching he's he's always been you know, whatever we think of Eddie Jones he's always said look his obsession has been we've got to beat the All Blacks they're, they're, they're the standard bearers and they are and in Chris Boyd as a very smart uh, coach who plays a uh, quite typical New Zealand game. He just lacks a bit of impetus and power from one or two to set the back line alight. But Furbank is hugely rated by uh, Boyd. Uh, and I know he's talk- talked to Jones about it and he gives a, a different element. I mean, to England to me, I think Stewart is the favourite to play full back. He's a rock. He's strong under a high ball. He blew a terrible two-on-one against Worcester, by the way. So he's far from the complete player, but he has a physical presence, and, and I like that. And I think Furbank has um, an aerial-like ability to flit all over the place, weave spells, and confuse people. And I like that sort of capacity there. And if Malins is on the wing, it really means England are very, very strong on their options, which leads me to say one other thing about the back line. I'm quite surprised that Johnny May has held on. I don't know what do you think about May's form has been pretty ropey for a while. 
but Eddie Jones has stayed loyal there. I, I wonder if he's one of these players who, if I know he's one of these players who, who Eddie Jones sees as a, a sort of a glue player, one of the sort of senior, but not not in that upper echelon of the leadership group, but a really important player within that squad. And, and he seems to have survived, like you say, where where some of those more established leaders have have had to make way. I think I think maybe he's one of those in the back line who will be asked to step up and take a leadership role within the squad. Yeah, Johnny May's very much seen as, I think, uh, as a diligent analyst and someone where if you've got loads of new faces coming in, he gets the pattern, he gets what the project is, he, he reads the game the way that England coaches want him to read it. It's one of these one of these things where, uh, when you look at a squad like this, and we've already, Stuart's mentioned it a little bit, it's, it's as much about what people can learn in about it and how much people come together as a group as, as much as a as a full whack and if you're going to make a lot of changes you can't I suppose you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater can you so if there's all these new faces coming in it's not a massive surprise that you'll keep hold of some guys who have done right by him in the past so there we have it coming at us live as we record the pod the the england squad for the autumn and their tests against tonga the wallabies and the world champions coming up now we'll look at all the premiership action from the weekend If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Gallagher Premiership goes from strength to strength. So some more incredible games this weekend. As we've already mentioned, we know where you were on Sunday, Stuart, and we'll come to to uh, to the Bath Saracens game. Were you at Worcester on on Saturday? 
I was, yes, I was at Worcester. I thought I won't see a more one-sided game in the Premiership working for the uh, Sunday Times and that. All I can say is I wasn't working for the Sunday Times the next day. 48-3 it was to, Le- to Leicester. I mean, it's- 48-3, and all I, you know, I've, I've written it again and again and again. I believe that professional sport should be decided on pitches and not in boardrooms, and, and spiritually and soulfully, right now, Worcester do not belong in the Premiership. They won one game last season against London Irish. They beat London Irish at home, first game this season again. They haven't beaten anybody else on the field. Um, they're woeful. As for Leicester... Um, they were in third gear, um, but I like the shape to their game. Uh, George Ford played beautifully, but as, as he said to me after the game, you know, the difference between club and country is huge. Uh, and um, Leicester have, frankly, the biggest crowd pleaser in the Premiership in Nemani Nandolo, who gave us a passable Jonah Lomu, albeit against Worcester and not England. He was swatting men off, and then the inside Past the skill of the man is extraordinary. Uh, he's just a great player to watch. Yeah, just on that, I think he's a great player to watch. But just to, I suppose the finest example of where these two teams are in that game was the moment where Matt Scott scythed right through the Worcester defence. No one touched him, and who was on his shoulder but Nandolo to just give a wee slip to, and that was try time. But at the start of the game, yeah, it was just the writing was on the wall. It felt like from an elder. I mean, I, I wrote down here magnificent seven just because that's the easiest thing to say but seven points clear in the premiership so fine illustration of just how dominant Leicester have been seven tries against Worcester and uh, their seven uh, Marco van Staden played like an axe murderer and in fact that entire Leicester back row were just brutal like and and the front row that they've got were, there was a lot of talk about the resurgence of Dan Cole uh, coming in, but the fact that you can play Montoya, who was probably the the only or one of the only plus points for Argentina and the rugby championship, I mean, it's it's terrifying to think. And then Ellis Genge as a captain, it's just the signs are all ominous. And you know the the way that they're rolling at the moment, incredible. It's there's a lot of talk about performance versus fun, but when they're winning like this, you feel like we're sort of returning to something. Don't don't you get that sense? Well, that's, I mean, it is fun to watch a team that are so direct and so powerful. I thought uh, Liebenberg as well, every week I see him, he, he's he's magnificent. Is he going to be the next Tiger who ends up in the Springbok camp? Um, very, very fine indeed, Lester. Um, there's no question. I, I'll just say, um, I did, before they played Saracens, write a piece before the game saying they would beat them and that they were contenders and it wasn't hindsight. And I only bring up this smug comment now because in yesterday, Sunday times, I said Saracens are having problems scoring tries and they duly <laughs> racked up 10 against Bath. So. Well, John, <laughs> you're done with that before someone else has a go. Yes, I'm glad you got in there before we did. <laughs> Jonathan Thomas, having been on the receiving end of, of another beating, did describe Leicester's performance as, as the most complete Premiership performance he'd seen, which... A bit like your 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 view on things, Stuart. As, as you won't see a more one-sided game, that statement probably lasted about twenty-four hours until we all got to the wreck on on yeah. Sunday and saw a Saracens performance, which was as close to faultless, particularly for, for for the first forty minutes, as as you'll come across. I remember Nick Tompkins blew a try because he didn't quite hold on to a break in the midfield, but pretty much everything else was was perfect. That the way they defended their own 22, and Bath had a lot of the ball and a lot of the territory and came nowhere near scoring. 
Um, I think it was five entries, zero points. Saracens down the other end, six entries, 45 points. Six tries, six entries, 45 points by half time. It was it was as close to perfect a half as you'll ever see, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it combined uh, efficiency was a word I haven't seen too much used uh, in relation yet to the to the uh, performance, but they were incredibly efficient. Uh, they were overwhelmingly powerful, and they were so big-hearted in defence. It, it was magnificent. No, I agree. Mark, Mark McCall said to us afterwards that he, you know, they they showed how well they can play that day, and it was their best performance for some time. And 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 I guess it was one of those games that. I don't know whether they've been reading your columns, Barnsley, but it felt like they came out with with, with some fire in their bellies, really, with something to prove. And it took Mario Toji five minutes to, <laughs> to, to to make his mark back on the Premiership. And you had Billy Vunipola on both sides of the ball, magnificent. Ben Earl, Alex Lazowski, a, a player who I can't, I've never understood why he was ditched so quickly from England, given what he can do. Again, on both sides of the ball, you're right. That final twenty minutes, they Bath had just they lost the fight. They conceded two tries just before half time. They just seemed to give up. It was the, the light went out. The light went out of the eyes. It yeah, did. yeah. And then and, and the wreck as they as they trooped off. The wreck was sort of a hushed, stunned silence. I mean, it, literally, no one's seen it before. It was the worst half that any team had ever played in in the Premiership. Conversely, the best by by Saracens, who who, who pushed on and scored ten tries. And and as you say, I think it was a real statement. But on on Bath Stewart. I thought seeing them at Bristol before their bye week, there were some really positive signs. I thought, I thought it was a game they should have won, a game they could have won. The way they played was was bold but accurate. What, what's what's I don't know? What's your take on 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 everything that seems to be going wrong there? Well, first of all, Mister Dimmock, our front row expert, is furiously raising his hand. So, <laughs> Alan, I. Well, I don't quite what, what's your take? I'll come on with the ex-Bath view in a minute. Well, because of the Bath performance, uh, the, I learned a new word this morning. I, I was scouting around, and uh, there's a medical condition called dysergia, which means the lack of muscular um, coordination. But actually, you can use it as a... People have been using it uh, on the internet as dysergy, the opposite of synergy. So you are less than the sum of their parts. Yeah. And that's kind of what, it, I mean, either definition you look at there is kind of what it feels like with Bath at the moment. Whether you say it's a lack of muscular coordination or whether you say they're lesser than the sum of their parts, something ain't working. And it just feels like for the talent that they've got, if you looked at it on a team sheet, you'd say they should at least put up a bit more fight than they've got. But Stuart's right. It just felt like in the last half hour of that game it was a case of they were wincing ex- expecting um, collisions that were going to come and that's bread and butter for Saracens they eat that stuff up Stuart as a, f- a former player I mean is that the thing that you find most galling or is it and, and and is that an easy fix is that something where you can go right you know if we have something that freshens it up around people will catch on to that I don't feel I feel a sort of loyalty to the memories of the past as opposed to where we are now I, I don't think Bath belongs to anyone and it didn't hurt that much really you know I'm not a, I'm not close to the club I don't get there so in the end I was able to sort of look at this one and say what went on and I would say that one thing you both said uh, first of all uh, you talked about you look at the team 1 to 15 and I'd agree but there's an issue uh, that goes beyond that and Alex talked about he thought Bath were going somewhere uh, from their Bristol performance, and I too, I too did, Alex. Uh, and I think what none of us has mentioned here, and the problem is, 
uh, Bath's front five is, is, is decimated. And the Bristol game, the Bristol pack are playing poorly at the moment. So we didn't realise how poor mm. it was. And, and normally, you know, if you talk about uh, then and now, and, and then was 30 years ago, you know, you, you can't compare because uh, professionalism and fitness and, you know, the sheer, how many times have we had that thing about how big they are now to how big they are then? Yeah, I watched that game yesterday, and I reckon my old Bath front five in the 1990s, not relatively, could have gone out there and could have put it to the current Bath front five. And I would never say that about any situation in any sport. It, it was astonishing. And we didn't have a giant front five, you know. I think Coochie would have caused some mayhem. Ollie would have muscled in the line-out. We didn't normally win line-out, but it was... Sure. With a front five like that, um, you know, they're not going to concede 71 points a week, but they ain't going to win many games. And, you know, where are they now? Play five, lost five. It's there to see. Um, a lot of the, the focus now is on is on that coaching setup, is on Stuart Hooper as the director of rugby and, and and Neil Hatley, the head coach. Stuart said after the game when he was asked by by those of us who, who gathered around to, to talk to him that he knows there'll be questions asked of him I you know I wrote I'm pretty sure that Stuart, uh, that that Bruce Craig will have will have some questions and and there is there is talk of of Steve Diamond being brought in in, in a role to you know and he, there, there's a very experienced director of rugby who you would the kind of character you would imagine would put some steel into that pack would would not stand for some of the the sort of sloppiness and almost craven surrender at times in that game I I felt do you think Stuart it's, um, it's time for a, a coaching change at, at the rec or, or, or at least a, a new voice to come in and, and give some experience? Uh, well, well, and you never like howling for change immediately no. after. It always feels like um, sort of gut reaction, which is a dangerous thing. Um, but this isn't hindsight. I mean, if you go back through the Times and Sunday Times, I, I, I was adamant that Stuart Hooper should never have been appointed as DOR because I didn't feel he had either the experience uh, or the the credibility or, or the or the feel for it. I think Stuart Hooper works really hard, but he has little feel. And I think a rugby club has to have feel as well as a, a, an ability to micromanage. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't think he's the man for Bath and, and I, I never did. I don't think, to be honest, it was. It, I know he, he wasn't Bruce Craig's appointment. He was talked into it, uh, and there'll be some things being spoken um, behind the scenes there right now. And you know, the only thing I'd say about Steve Diamond, I, I think if Bath's a, a, a broken body, uh, Diamond um, can almost pull him back from the grave, He's like a sort of a one of remember those sort of Victorian criminals who used to break into graveyards and get up the old corpse and then they turn them alive. Sort of Frankenstein thing. Um, Working here. Steve, Steve's brilliant at that. And if Bath are looking for someone to just pull him round, then he's your man. But this is a year without relegation, so there's no sense of urgency as there uh, often is. And Is Steve a long-term appointment? I don't think so, because Bath's a very different sort of club, but... No, I don't think he is. If if you're just saying let's let's get someone in for nine months to to steady the ship, and Steve Diamond wanted that, he's a good call. If you said who's going to replace Hooper, I don't think it works. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like this is just a, a predictable tail end to the to to what has been what I've heard some people describe as the banter era at Bath under Bruce Craig, where we've seen some scattergun signings, some guys that have never really hit the uh, hit their straps at the club, um, tying together. It's never felt like a team that's tied together. And when they pulled off great results, you can say fantastic because there are some incredible characters within that squad. But it just feels like there's something that needs needed to paste them together. We're talking an awful lot about Bath, but I want to talk about one moment in this game that stood out for me. And it was a, a really in- interesting moment is, um, is when uh, a forward, Billy Vunapola, pulled off a sumptuous 50-22 kick uh, that went into the corner. And this is in a weekend where we've seen uh, a number of Find 50-22 kicks. Uh, Delahunt for Connett, the hooker, uh, hoofed, him, hoofed his way to a nice 50-22. Antoine Dupont uh, corkscrewed a beautiful 50-22. Um, and in the summer, I remember talking to Jake McIntyre, who'd been a, a fly half for Claremont Auvergne. He'd gone back to Super Rugby to play in Australia. And he was telling me that in Australia, when they, where they initiated the 50-22, they hadn't really scratched the surface about how useful a tool it can be. And we're starting to see now uh, how, uh, how useful that can be. And he said, he predicts that it could become a fantastic attacking weapon. At the same time as I was interviewing him about that, uh, one Stuart Barnes was saying that he thought it was, a, it was going to be a horrible <laughs> addition to the game. And I was just wondering if Stuart is now going to take his opportunity to say to the nation that perhaps he was a bit wrong about the 50-22. On the on the ruck, am I going to admit to being wrong twice? <laughs> Saracen, yes. Good point. The fifty twenty two. I had to be honest, Al. I've been I've been watching that and thinking about it, and it is developing in ways that suggest that it's my 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 aversion to it is that world rugby seems to come up with so many sort of bits and pieces alterations. I'm just thought. Here's another one. Watching it in the flesh, it looks like I might have to make a, a second confession uh, on the programme. Yeah, and, you know, that Vunipola moment, when he did that, I, th- I was sort of laughing at myself again then, thinking that this can work. Um, although what it does do, you've got to remember, it it puts the ball dead again. So it's, it's great in one way, but what you're doing to get the ball back is stopping the game because you watch them come up. Then it's another minute gone as the play, as the props, uh, as the pack amble like a herd of cows towards the next line out. So you're still losing <laughs> live game time. But overall, I say, Al, yeah, okay, your knife just about found its target. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't, it, it didn't pierce my heart, but at the moment I'm bleeding. I yeah, think, I think I'll, it is interesting watching watching how that tactic develops because Orlando Bailey went on a break late in the game on his own and, and almost stopped himself before he crossed the halfway line and executed a, a kick into the same corner as, as Billy had done. You think that if he'd carried on going himself against that Southampton's defence, he'd have been tackled and turned over. And and, and actually, he, he turned. It, it was quite a smart piece of play from him, I thought. And you, you saw the week before a cross kick from Marcus Smith in his own half. The reason he could do that was because Bristol had some defenders back covering the 50-22. There was more... Mm-hmm. More space and more variety to the attack, and it it's one of those laws I think is going to evolve as as teams work different ways of playing it. Yeah, that's one of those things that Magdar said he predicts will happen in Europe. Having having played in the top fourteen, he said we'll see potentially we'll see lots of guys going for the corner, and and folk will cover that. But the more useful kick tactically could end up being the one that dissects people right down the middle of the park and finds grass because we all love a chase 
in Northern Hemisphere rugby, and there's there's a lot of that. But at the moment, at least, it's just I think I just want to celebrate the fact that the bigger blokes are putting boot to ball. And if you're a, if you're a coach and kids, doesn't matter what position people are playing, let them work on their kicking. If, if you're a coach of, of of Premiership clubs as well, here's the flip side. You know, when something is good, something goes wrong. And the other thing we've seen, we're seeing people making busts through the middle there. But I'll say to you, if Billy Vudapola wanted to offload to someone, everyone has stopped as, as, he, as he geared towards the kit. So we're going to get to a culture where people, everyone, prop forwards, number eights, they'll all be able to, to drive a ball into the 22 for 50-22. But in the process, we will lose the art, which we, in fact, we won't lose the art of um, support play because in the Northern Hemisphere, we've never had it. But we'll get even worse. And the New Zealanders will still flood through when they make a break. And the Aussies will do that. But we will stop there and we will wait to clap our hands and say, brilliant kit, we're in the 22 with a line out as opposed to under the post with a trine. So the flip side. It is interesting. It's, it'd be a good one to, to watch how that develops over over mm. the season. Um, we've talked about Worcester. We've talked about Bath. I mean, all is not well in the West Country. Br- Bristol lost again uh, up at Newcastle. And I, I don't know if anyone saw any of that game or... Has any thoughts on? Because I think Newcastle are a team who are, you know, kind of the opposite to, to Bath. They're, you know, they're forging a unit there under Dean Richards, who who are probably greater than the sum of their parts. Yeah, well, and it's uh, it's uh, well, as as he said himself after the game, it's three wins from five. We'll bite your hand off for that. Um, you know, <laughs> entertainment value. I don't know. There was not a single point scored for thirty six minutes in that game, and when it was, Callum Chick went over from. Uh, about uh, 30 centimetres, um, spun past loads of defenders and went in. But I tell you what, you, you bloody take it. And it's 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 interesting to see, you're right, that that element of synergy. And it's once again, we're talking about Czech, the way that he's played. Um, we're talking about Jamie Blemeyer, who got a couple of turnovers in that one. And, you know, where he is in the, the pecking order around the country is a really interesting one. But it's sort of like they've it's almost like they've gone, we don't care. We're going to play the Falcons way. And this is, this is how it goes. And by the same token, it also shows you the value of kickers because uh, Conan, who got a yellow card at one point in the game, slotted over a couple of kicks. Yuan Lloyd for Bristol missed a couple. And that's the difference in the end because it was a low scoring affair. So it shows you, if you just get that little bit of edge, if you just got that little bit of grittiness, which let's be honest, they've got that in spades at the Falcons sitting pretty well, prettier than previous times. Uh, there's also one massive difference as well. Uh, you look at someone like Bath with all their assets, but they've got as director of rugby, Stuart Hooper. Newcastle, without the assets, have got Dean Rugby. Uh, uh, Dean Richards. Dean Rugby. Dean Richards of rugby. Uh, <laughs> if you want to know about the value of having a, a top-class man running the show, think about Bath and think about Newcastle. It's there for you to, to see loud and clear. And the weekend kicked off in Manchester with, with Harlequins, the defending champions, suffering their first defeat of the season and and maybe a bit of a reality check for, for Marcus Smith. Um, Tom Curry said in in our paper on, on Saturday morning that, yes, he's a hell of a player and, yes, he's playing some great rugby, but he hasn't played against our defence yet. And on Friday night he did and, uh, and, and, and came up on the wrong side of it. Friday night sounds horrible. Quinns had lost six on the bounce there, I think, Alex, hadn't they, going into the game? So people said, ah, there you go, that bursts their bubble. It doesn't burst their bubble. Teams will lose. You know, Saracens have lost this season. It's not the end of the world. It wasn't a great game. 
As as a big fan of forward play, I mean, it was it was brisk stuff from from Sale, and it's you know there have been a couple of times this season where they've reached the second half of games and they've completely lost. But this was this was not that. And John Ross even recovered from a yellow card to come in, and he was just in the nicest possible way horrible. Like they were just horrible to play against. Made good use of a mall, and it's something that we're going to be talking about more and more and more, particularly as we we, we monitor how these 50-22s are going at uh, the way that Leicester Tigers are playing. It's something that's just going to really shape the narrative as 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 a weapon through, throughout this season. I think that's the premiership pretty much covered. We're going to hand over now to, to Jess Hayden from the Times with all the latest news from the women's game. There are no games in the Premier 15s this week as the players are in their international camps preparing for the busy autumn international schedule ahead. The Red Roses are in their second autumn camp already as they prepare to start their schedule against New Zealand on the 31st of October. Will it be trick or treat for Simon Middleton's England side? The team is without their all-time top point scorer, Emily Scarrett, who is recovering from a broken leg, but they are boosted by the return of Sarah Byrne, the Bristol Bears prop who missed most of last season through injury. England have the most fixtures this autumn, playing New Zealand twice and also facing the USA and Canada. Wales women have enjoyed their first camp in the new training centre at the Principality Stadium, where they are getting ready to face Japan, South Africa and Canada. The new centre is a sign of the investment to come for the side, which is currently entirely amateur as no player is paid to represent their country. Heading north now as Scotland prepares to play just one match this autumn against Japan. Last month, Brian Eason's squad played in the momentous final match of the Rugby World Cup European qualifiers, where they produced a stunning performance in the final minutes to edge in front of Ireland and confirm their place in the final qualification tournament to give them one last chance to qualify for the World Cup. Ireland are still bruised from their failure to qualify for next year's Rugby World Cup, having hosted the last one. They have two test matches this autumn against Team USA and Japan. Both matches will be played at home as supporters can watch the women's side play live for the first time since March 2020. The side is also without Claire Malloy, Ireland's captain for the 2017 Rugby World Cup, who retires after 12 years in the green shirt. That was Jess Hayden from The Times, rounding up the latest in the women's game, and she'll be with us every week. Now, last week you may have read that World Rugby passed a new law which allows male players to wear leggings in matches for the first time. It follows further criticism this season about the injuries and the friction burns that players pick up playing on artificial pitches. Uh, World Rugby listened to complaints from players in the Premiership via the RPA. So we decided to, we should speak to Christian Day, the Head of Player Affairs at the RPA, to, to hear about the, the burns, the issues and whether many male players will end up wearing these leggings. My role at the RPA around sort of player affairs is, is listening to listening to player opinion and feedback and, and just trying to help the players in any way I can in terms of that representation, which which goes on behind the scenes pretty much 24-7. So yeah, player raised the concern that they, you know, they were particularly susceptible to, to friction burns from, from AGPs. And we've got four in the Prem now. So, you know, if, if you're going to be playing just under a third of your games on them and, and you're susceptible to these burns, um, you know, could we do something about it? And looking into the regulations it, they were already in place for women to to wear and it just seemed a, a pretty common sense approach that, that adding that layer of protection as a player's choice um like i say it was just common sense and and world rugby pushed it through pretty quickly as well we we work with um, international rugby players we brought it to them they brought it to world rugby and, and it was through in under a month so, so you know 
a really nice example of a player trying to change things for the better. And yeah, quite a few positive comments around the stories, I think, from people who've, you know, experienced the same burns. Had it reached a point where players were just fearing playing on these surfaces, particularly those who were susceptible to it? Because we've seen so many photographs of, of players who've had knees and elbows ripped up. Yeah, I think, you know, the burns sit exterior to the, the wider kind of injury discussion because, and this is part of the reason why they kind of go under the radar, they're not a time loss injury generally. So they're not going to stop you playing on the weekend. And that's the thing that really drives, uh, you know, the administrators of the game that we don't want to see, you know, the megastars get injury, injuries that could be avoided and not being able to play. So they're just an unpleasant kind of uh, side effect of playing on these pitches. And like I said, if we, if we can help with that, then, then that's our role in, in terms of the wider injury discussion, you know, you're absolutely right. Some, some guys don't like them. It's worth saying as well that some guys really do some guys and girls. When we last surveyed our members, we were a bit surprised at the results we got, which was roughly a 50, 50 split in terms of, you know, for and against. We're looking to survey our members again this autumn. So that was two or three years ago now. We're looking to survey our members again this autumn as to their opinions. So uh, in terms of the wider injury discussion, we go off uh, PRISP, which is the, the injury surveillance project that's run by the RFU and PRL. And, and it does show not so much that you get injured more. The, the, the rate of injury is, is pretty consistent between grass and artificial. It's more the, the severity and then the burden. So severity is how long you'll be injured for. So roughly six days longer if it's an artificial surface then the burden is the combination of the two and that's the one that everyone kind of uses because it tells you you know over a thousand hours you know how many of these how many days are lost basically I asked Rob Baxter about this um uh, the other day because for years he's been managing Jack Noel for example to try and avoid him playing on those surfaces because Jack's knees would react badly and he'd have swelling and there'd be an impact in the in the week following the the game and his view was um, if nine, if the top 92 football clubs in the country are not allowed to use them for performance reasons, then why can four out of 13 premiership clubs have to have them? Now, obviously the Premier League and the Championship have significantly more money, but as, as the point I made to him near me, Sutton United got promoted to League Two and had to spend half a million pounds changing their pitch. Um, Rob Baxter's point was, he doesn't see the financial need for, for the clubs to use artificial surfaces. Do you feel that the end game here is that they'll end up having to be ripped up or actually is it going to go the other way and we'll see more of them because of the financial benefits of having that surface you can train on, you can hire out for the community, all those other elements? So as ever here, there's a huge amount of nuance to the argument. So whatever we do in the pro game will probably trickle down to the community. We, we know that and that's sort of the responsibility we have in terms of the community game, in terms of, you know, the local club having an AGP is gold for them because like you say, they can get the kids on it seven days a week, 24 seven. And it's fantastic. It never deteriorates. Now relating that to the pro game where you've got, you know, the proper elite players, should they be playing on AGPs? That's, that's the argument that I think that Rob's making there because, you know, a lot of the clubs train on AGPs in the week as well. So it's, it's not as black and white as rip them all up or not. Should, should we be using AGPs in the Prem? That's probably the more uh, pertinent question. Um, there was a moratorium in place for three years off the back of some work that we did at the RPA 
saying that, you know, whilst this injury risk is a bit unknown, we shouldn't be putting any more down. That ended in the summer and, and Gloucester put one down, obviously, straight away. They used some new research where they'd actually looked into individual pitches rather than just groupings. Um, and that helped their cause. But, but like I said, I think there's still studies to be done around that foot interaction, around the lower limb injuries. Um, and ultimately, the premiership governs itself. We, we have to work to World Rugby regs. Um, World Rugby say these pitches are okay. So that's why, you know, I'm, I've campaigned that players should be able to wear the leggings. If World Rugby say, you know, that the pitches are okay, let's let the players protect themselves. Now, if, if PRL want to say, as a league, we're going to insist that we play on natural surfaces or, or hybrid seems to be the, the go-to at the moment, then that's a decision for the league. Now, again, you've got to caveat that slightly because Franklin's Gardens, pitch I loved, pitch that everyone seems to think is the best pitch, it's a completely natural surface. There's no hybrid in there. There's no fibres. And it costs an awful lot of money to rip up that natural, beautiful surface that... Um, you know, the likes of uh, Wayne and Andy, the groundsmen there, who I know well, you know, they love and care about. Tell them to rip it up and change it isn't easy for them to accept because they, you know, a lot of people think that's the best, best pitch in the Prem. So I say it's not easy. The, the decision for the Prem is, is for the Prem owners to make and for the PRL to make about how they want their league to look and play. Ultimately, World Rugby say these pitches are suitable and that's why the likes of Gloucester put one down in some... You said the reaction to the leggings announcement was was pretty positive. I'd imagine that's within the the uh, the playing community who you represent. Um, there was wasn't widespread positive reaction. There was, I guess, some sniggers and some maybe fairly predictable responses from people who didn't like the idea of it. How do you respond to to, to those who, who criticise the the innovation? Innovation's the right word, isn't it? Yeah, the game, the game moves on. It's, uh, is it? Some some people did send me. You know, the game started out with players were wearing trousers. By the way, so um, maybe we're just going a bit more old school. But um, like I say, that you've got to innovate. You can't sit still and say it should look the way it looked in the seventies. Um, and that's rugby. Like I just don't get the, you know, what, what difference it makes to you watching a game if someone's got a pair of tights on with shorts and socks over the top. I just I shrug my shoulders a bit. In terms of the players, you know, I, will every player wear them? Absolutely not. Do a lot of players already wear them in training? Yes, they do. So it's very much their choice. Um, and it just seems common sense that if you are susceptible to these burns, if you've had them before, if they are unpleasant, you now have a chance at least to cover up and um, and hopefully not get so many. So it, it, a really serious point. Um, I was at the Stoop last Friday and Joe Marler turned up in a crushed velvet tracksuit. <laughs> Have you made sure there are some restrictions in place so that people like him can't wear fluorescent orange <laughs> lights and and, uh, and use it to make their own statement? Because I think we've had enough of Joe's fashion sense. You know, I think Joe takes delight in pushing the boundaries of what uh, what people say. Um, you know, I did I did actually approach PRL and said, look, do you want to give some advice to the players? They they were relatively flexible on it at that stage, but. Yeah, I think if Joe turns up in the leopard print, it might raise some eyebrows. Um, I think most guys will just wear the black ones that they wear for training. But who knows? I mean, you know, some cynics have said, you know, more more room for adverts and branding and, and everything else. So rather than tattooing the legs, they've got some leggings to put some stuff on now.
So that was Christian Day, and we will find out whether Joe Marler takes up that challenge of wearing these leopard print leggings. Now, we'll just round up this week's episode with our regular God or Goddess of the Week feature. Who would like to go first, Al or Stuart? Al's got his hand up. Well, I, th- I, th- I thought I'd get mine in because it's, uh, it's probably a, a tad sadder, a, a tad more serious. Um, well, firstly, it was sad news broke overnight about um, Sean Wainui passed away in a in a traffic accident in New Zealand. We don't know too many details about that, but he's left behind a, a wife and two kids. Um, just want to say condolences to his family and everyone over there. You might have remembered him from last year. He broke the record in Super Rugby for scoring five tries in one game. Um, but my god of the week is actually Keith Earls, who went public um, on television in Ireland at the weekend ahead of the release of his autobiography to talk about his struggles with um, being bi- bipolar. Uh, shed some light on the subject and said he was open to talk to players about it. It was a, a brave move from him, and I just thought it was a good opportunity to say good on him. Good shout, Al. Stu? Goddess of the week. Uh, the young lady whose name I shamefully didn't get, who before kickoff said, take out this gin and tonic, have a really large one. <laughs> she knew what was coming. Thank you. <laughs> as, as I as I watched, um, as I, I wrote my match report from that game, the women, the Bath women's game went on in the out on the field, about three thousand people stayed at the wreck, and it was a it was a, a cracking game. And, and actually, everyone who stayed on to watch that game left in, in far greater spirits than all those who had had trooped out after the men's game. So well, well done to to the ladies for playing and for for, for about three thousand people staying on but on to watch that. Um, I don't think I can I can beat uh, Al's nomination for for Keith Earls. Um, mine would all have been rugby related. Uh, I just really enjoyed watching Billy Vunapola playing in a way that we know he can play and that we've been waiting for him to play. But uh, that doesn't come close to, to Al's nomination for Keith Earls, who is this week's Ruck God of the Week. This has been the Ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times. We'll be back next week, but a bit later in the week with a, a full autumn international preview. Please like and subscribe on your usual podcast outlet. We'll talk to you soon. 